Today's Fordham Conversations is an encore presentation. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations on WFUV. Today, author and professor Drusilla Cornell joins me in the studio to talk about her latest book, Clint Eastwood and Issues of American Masculinity. The book, which is available from Fordham Press, views the iconic actor's films through a feminist and philosophical lens. Welcome, Drusilla. Thank you so much for inviting me, Robin. You're so welcome. So what made you choose Clint Eastwood as a catalyst for a discussion about American masculinity? Uh Two reasons. Uh, the first is a rather obvious one. Uh, Clint Eastwood is one of the few actors who's actually made the transition into becoming a major director. Indeed, I would argue that he's really one of America's great directors. And so it's interesting to look at a man who's been in Hollywood, is so well known, and yet has now done uh, a, a body of work of serious films that address some of the most burning issues of our time. So I'm a political philosopher, and uh, movies are what the American public knows. And so I thought, well, this would be a good way for me to get my message across. Now, I must also admit, this is my second reason, I grew up with Clint Eastwood, and he was this, uh, the favorite of my father. And I grew up in a very right-wing Republican racist community, and so I saw Clint as over with them. And my, Can I ask where you grew up? I grew up in San Marino, California, okay. the home of the John Birch Society. And uh, so Clint was kind of, you know, not my thing. I was visiting my father, and there were two movies in the Laguna Beach movie theater, and he said, oh, don't go see that Mystic River, because that movie, Clint's, I don't know what's happened to Clint, He's all over the place. He's dealing with all this complexity. It's the worst movie since Closely Watched Trains, which you dragged me to when you were uh, 19. And so I thought, oh, i got to go see that movie. And so much to my surprise, I thought, you know, Eastwood's really up to something here, up to something that is about looking at these, these three main male characters and uh, their story. And it's just, you know, famously a story about a boy who's raped uh, and his two friends. And it's about all of them being deeply traumatized by the event and about the repetition that trauma brings with it. So that, uh, ironically, Jimmy ends up losing his daughter because he won't allow her to date the, the son of the man that he killed. Ah. And uh, so... And in this film, uh, Eastwood directed it, correct? He, 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 he directed wasn't in it. it. He, he was, directed he, it. He was not in it. And um, had an excellent cast. Tim Robbins uh, played Dave. Jimmy was played by Sean Penn. And uh, the other character, uh, I forget who played him, uh, he, he becomes a cop. And so, of course, the cop is supposed to track down Jimmy's killer. And then Jimmy, thinking that you know his daughter has now been offed by Dave, uh, decides that he's going to off Dave. And then, of course, he's just repeated a cycle. Um, a cycle of violence. Yeah, that you a talk cycle about of in your violence. Book too. That's right, a cycle of violence. And it's very interesting because the cop and um, is an, a fascinating character. His wife's left him, and he's doing all the right things. This is something that Eastwood returns to over and over again, fidelity. You know, she's left him, and uh, 
his partner even encourages him, you know, to like, hey, you know, hang out, make it with some woman, you know, she's gone. He won't do it. And what makes it interesting is throughout the movie, uh, you see this woman, the, the wife that's left, just as a pair of lips kind of yapping at him. And when he finally realizes that he, he's done something wrong, he doesn't know what it is because he, he didn't cheat. He brought the paycheck home. He was a good guy. Yeah, he was a good guy. He doesn't know what he did wrong. But he realizes that something went wrong because she left him. And, that, and he has a baby girl. So what's so interesting at the end, you see him kind of frozen. He knows Jimmy killed Dave. He's never going to be able to prove it. And you, know, and, uh, you see him reconciled with his wife and his daughter. Mm. And you see Jimmy having just been told by his wife, never apologize. That isn't what men do. And um, um, Laura Linney plays the the uh, the wife of Jimmy. And, you know, when she says, you know, be a man, don't apologize, because he's, he's, he tells her, I've killed the wrong man. And, of course, she says, you know, I married you because you're a real man. Mm. So you've got the real man having lost the daughter, and the father-daughter thing is, comes up again and again and again in the film, films Eastwood Direct. And you see, that's the other thing I like about Eastwood as a director. He doesn't tell you the whole story. Right. And you see, what I think is so interesting, and, you know, look, Eastwood as a director, he's not a philosopher, he's not a psychoanalyst, uh, is that he makes you see that he's not able to see this woman until he says he's sorry. And that makes him human because we all have our point of view that we we, we see it from. Even the most open-minded person Absolutely. can only see from a limited number of points of view because of their experience or because of, you know, life in general. There's only so much you can see. Absolutely. And also, you're dealing here, too, with something that is such an interesting story because they're dealing with the rape of a young boy by people dressed up as figures of masculine authority, a, a priest and a cop. Right. That's why he gets in the car. That's why he thinks he's okay. His authority figures. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that because your book is called uh, Clint Eastwood and Issues of American Masculinity. So explain or describe or define masculinity. Well, I think masculinity for me has, has two components. And, and the, uh, the first is, you know, obviously the, the gender component that, you know, one is either female or male or transgendered, you know, uh, if you're cool now. Uh, uh, so there's obviously a lot of other alternatives. But masculinity is a way of organizing yourself towards your gender and towards your sexuality. So it comes with a whole set of messages that are ethical and moral. And that's what oftentimes gets eclipsed, right? They have their messages about what it means to be a good man. And Eastwood has these messages uh, in his heart and soul to such an extent, in a way, He's always reexamining whether they're the right messages, whether they take you down the right direction, uh, or whether they take you down the wrong direction. Um, so that, uh, and see, you see it again, like in, in Million Dollar Baby, uh, where here again, you're looking at like a man called to do something that's the most difficult thing anyone could imagine. And tell us, uh, tell our listeners uh, about Million Dollar Baby. Million What's Dollar Baby is particularly interesting because, first of all, right, you know, the, you think it's going to be a female Rocky story, um, you know, it's, and so you think it's going to have a happy ending. She's going to win the championship, and they're going to get married. Female Rocky, right? And but of course, he's playing out. You know, a girl can't be a boxer. You're in a position to negotiate. Yes, sir. Because I know if you train me right, I'm going to be a champ. I've seen you looking at me. Yeah, out of pity. Don't you say that. 
Don't you say that if it ain't true. I want a trainer. I don't want charity, and I don't want favors. If you're not interested, then I got more celebrating to do. Stop, stop, stop. Come on, stop. What the hell are you doing? Okay. If I'm going to take you on... You won't never regret it. Look, just listen to me. If I take you on... I promise I'll work so hard. God, this is a mistake already. Mm-mm. I'm listening, boss. If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, yes, Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. Now, you know, this is playing off, in my language, the phallus penis distinction. Well, you know, she can't be a boxer because women don't do that kind of thing. This is the most phallic of sports, right? You, you stand up. And you pound him into the ground, right? You know, I mean, and even the stories he's using it on are very, like, macho, phallic stories, you know. So what's this story about? What's the underlying subtext? He's failed with his daughter. He writes her every day. She wants nothing to do with him. He failed his father. Or at least in one of those aspects of what it would be to be a, quote, a, a good man. man. Right, exactly. And he failed to protect Morgan Freeman because he was supposed to the fix-it man, right? Then Morgan Freeman loses an eye. Uh, so and that torments him. Yeah, torments him, right. And so he's not letting his new fighter go to the championship because he thinks he's not ready, he's not ready, he's not ready, he's not ready. So you have this story where he has to face that, once again, he, he blames himself for failing to protect her. She becomes completely paralyzed. And he says, you know, kill me. And this is Hillary, uh, right. Hillary Swank. Yeah, and and when, when she asks him that, you know, he, he goes to the priest, and the priest says, you know, you, it's wrong. So he's confronted with this huge ethical dilemma because he thinks it's wrong, too. And where it gets bound to phallic masculinity, right, is you expect him to, if he's going to do this, to, you know, give some kind of self-righteous statement about euthanasia. Dan, I think that's why Eastwood sometimes says he's not making, sending a message. This isn't a pro-euthanasia movie, because it, it, but it, nor is it against it. It, it destroys him. Mm. So the Morgan Freeman character says... We don't really know what happened to him. And now we know the whole story is a letter to his daughter from the Morgan Freeman character uh -huh. to testify what a good man her father was. So you see that you could be called to do something as a man that would collapse your very sense of that sort of phallic wholeness, I make the world, I can do everything, because he knew he couldn't. He couldn't save this woman. He couldn't make her life worth living. And she says to Hillary Swank, says to Eastwood, I want to die hearing the crowds cheering for me. But he has to kill her. What I like about Eastwood is that your imagination right. is going to join that story now. And see, what you know is only that he loves her. That the great love in his life at that point is this young woman. He's her only family. That's all you really need to know. Now, some people are going to read that into sex and love. Others are going to read it into family. What I like about Eastwood is you, the viewer, are going to be called to imagine. You're going to be the one who's finishing the story. So you see, that makes you reflect on yourself. 
You know, it's like most Hollywood films, they pound you over the head. You know, they had sex, and how do you know? Because you saw them having sex for five minutes on the refrigerator. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and along these lines also, um, many of Eastwood's characters, they're really ambiguous. What do you think is so appealing about these images, this I don't know his past or just that mysterious stranger that he seems to duplicate in quite a few of his movies. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's it's interesting because, you see, for me, Eastwood from the very beginning starts doing his own thing. I mean, he was obviously enormously influenced by the spaghetti westerns, which were, by the way, made by a very left-wing political man who's a law member of the Communist Party. And so there's they're kind of a spoof, you know. I mean, there's a lot of humor in those movies. Uh, and Eastwood's character is sort of the ultimate spoof, right? I mean, the, the 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 cowboy mystery cowboy with twenty guns carried to its extreme. Uh, so I always found it interesting that some of my men friends didn't find those movies extremely funny. I think the director meant them to be extremely funny, and he said so, you know. So Eastwood was influenced, I think, by that in say movies like. Um, his first movie, um, Pale Rider, I think yeah. his movie, um, and also uh, High Plains Drifter. High Plains Drifter from 1973. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Those, so this is him. He's he's just starting out as a director, right? And these seem to be that character again. But then High Plains Drifter has an interesting twist. Here's the way I would, well, the reading I gave in the book, is what makes it interesting. This, this was a sheriff standing up to the gold mines, trying to do something good. And the people in the town don't want the sheriff standing up to the gold mines and enforcing the law. This is where we start getting into the law and its importance mm-hmm. as a, a limitation on people. Um, and he is beaten so badly that he supposedly uh, dies, and they bury him. And the only person on his side or who weeps for him is a dwarf. Now, see, look at this interesting symbolism. Okay. So dwarf is always the stand-in for the castrated man, right? Uh, the one who, you know, is quote-unquote small, both literally and metaphorically. And a lot of small people have written about dwarfdom being used as a symbol for castration, and that's why they call themselves small people now, and I'm 100% behind that. So, but, in, but in Eastwood, you know, he doesn't like political correctness if it doesn't allow you, I think, a certain kind of expressive space. That's why I think he's against it. So it's the, the, the dwarf. Uh, it who is um, his witness, and he makes him his deputy. Mm-hmm. And why? Because he's the only one who cared about what happened to him. So you see, even though Eastwood may say, well, you know, I'm not really saying something here, the, the man who stands in as a castrated one is now given empowerment. Right. And then he he leaves, and he's when the, the small person says, you know, who are you? And he says, you know who I am. And then second thing, the second uh Stranger movie, Pale Rider, Mm -hmm. where he's pretending to be a priest. Now, think of there you have, like, he's acting like the good man, and he's pretending to be the priest, and clothes make the man. He becomes a good man. And so he rides in, and he gets very involved with the the tin pans who are fighting the big gold miners and their technological push. And, you know, he helps them stand up and keep their land. And yes, he has, you know, a one-night stand with the woman and doesn't have sex with the daughter. Which ends, causes some ends conflict. Up, ends up empowering the father mm-hmm. at the end of it, saying, you know, you don't need me anymore, mm-hmm. I, and then rides away. So, you know, the so-called wimpy man, the, again, 
is even though it's a completely different symbol of masculinity than the dwarf or the small person. Right. Um, now you have the the guy who wants to get married but isn't sexy, empowered because he is with Eastwood stood up. And that's what I was thinking. I said, well, I'm reading your book and I'm saying, hmm, you know, I'm looking at the themes and I'm saying this mysterious stranger, this, you know, cowboy that rides in shooting, rides out, and sometimes you never get to know what his, even what his name is. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe he's trying to have his audience relate with him and be able to say, that's me. You know, I think that there's a, a deep element of Eastwood in the identification with the underdog. A deep element. Yeah. And I think that does make him very appealing. And these stories, even though they seem very much like spaghetti westerns at the beginning, and look, he's using a lot of his cinematic techniques of the spaghetti western. He's just learning as a director. You know, like anyone, you, you mimic the what you thought was the best. Uh, Until and, you come into your own. Yeah, as you come into your own. But there's interesting twists that make them uh, different and that make it, you know, less of a spoof and um, more of a kind of allegory. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm speaking with author and professor Drusilla Cornell. Uh, she's written Clint Eastwood and the Issues of American Masculinity. Film fanatics save up box offices all over the tri-state area with the WFUV member card. And as a WFUV member, you'll get discounted admission at the Picture House in Pelham and the American Museum of the Moving Image. To find out more about the benefits of being a WFUV member, visit WFUV.org. Now, Drusilla, I want to talk about um, Eastwood's latest film, that he starred in, which was Gran Torino. Um, and in this, in Gran Torino came out in 2008. Um, it's the one where uh, Eastwood, he starred in it and he uh, he directed in it. And he plays, the, he plays this uh, widowed Korean war veteran who I said is a curmudgeon. Um, he's a lovable racist and he befriends his neighbor and his neighbor's family who are Hmong. Do you think he was making a statement at all Eastwood about racism? I think the movie is a masterpiece, and I think it's Eastwood at his very best. And yes, it's a, a Korean veteran who doesn't get along with his children and is very tormented by that. We come back to the failed father theme that is in one movie after the other that he directed. In this movie, as you put it, he befriends his family despite himself, right? And it's very funny. It's filled with It humor. really is funny. And, you know, he, he starts really liking being adored by all these women, you know, and... Um, what did he do? He stood up to the gang members who were harassing the family. Now, here we see, again, one of these interesting twists. How does he stand up? He stands up like, you know, real men stand up. You know, he puts a gun to the guy's head and says, you know, you come anywhere around these people again, and I'm going to blow your head off. And, you know, you think, okay, that's done. Real man, you know, Eastwood, we're, we're back on Eastwood's familiar territory. But what happens? The gang gets mad. And they come, and they shoot up the house, but we're shed. They take his female neighbor, who he's also befriended, and they rape her. Now, what has Eastwood realized? That in a certain sense, the gang has done something to this young girl to speak about drama that is going to be, if not irreparable, a scar, a deep one for the rest of her life. She's raped by her own cousin. How awful. Mm -hmm. And what he thought had solved the problem just instigated further violence. And now look at two interesting things he does. His friend, right? His friend is going to um, go with Eastwood. And they're going to get revenge now. They're really going to get revenge, right? So Eastwood kind of seduces him into the basement. 
locks them up there. And he says, you know, I shot people who look like you, and I can't get their faces out of my mind. What do you want? I promised your wife I'd get you to go to confession. Now, why would you do that? She was very insistent. She made me. Well, you're kind of fond of promising things you can't deliver on, right, Father? Well, let's talk about something else. What? Life and death. Life and death. What the hell do you know about life and death? I'd like to think I know a lot. I'm a priest. Yeah. You get up and preach about life and death, but all you know is what you learned in preschool, right out of the rookie preacher's handbook. I don't know about that. I think... Death is bittersweet. Sort of bitter in its pain, but sweet in its salvation. That's what you know about life and death, and it's pathetic. What do you know, Mr. Kowalski? I know a lot. I've lived there almost three years in Korea with his banks. We shot men, stabbed them with bayonets, hacked 17-year-olds to death with shovels. Stuff I'll remember till the day I die. Horrible things. But things I'll live with. So, this Korean veteran admits that the racist language that allowed him to supposedly kill in the first place, when he killed, he killed a human being, and it stayed with him. So he locks the boy in the basement. And you still think he's going to do some Eastwoodian revenge. And we know he maybe is dying of some kind of lung disease. But again, we just have hints of that. Also, when he's teaching the young boy rules in the barbershop. Oh, yeah. And and the young boy keeps blowing it, and then he finally gets it right, and they say, hey, you can't talk like that. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you see, that's both showing how these rules are transmitted and how there's humor to these rules. I think, if I interpreted that statement, if you can't show the humor in, like, the rules of masculinity mm-hmm. by showing a man trying to teach his young Hmong neighbor how to be a man in the white male sense of the word, then you can't put on display those very rules that are both absolutely important and necessary and always in danger of turning into self-righteousness or this absolute power fantasy, uh, which I call the ultimate phallic fantasy. And so you have to make fun of them. Because then it leaves room for discussion. Yeah, exactly. I don't think for one minute that there's ever been uh, a, a director who in some ways is more respectful. You know, I, this is where I disagree with Spike Lee, his criticism of the movie he made about Bird. I mean, Bird died at 34 of drug addiction. You can't make a movie about Bird and, and, and pretend heroin isn't part of the story. Mm-hmm. The jazz musician Bird. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I also feel the same way about people who criticize Precious. As all, we, do, we don't want to show bad images of the black community. We want to we want to have a free space for the imagination of a director. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think he's, he's getting at. Because I think Gran Torino, you know, again, playing off all these themes, right? Of, you know, we know he's a good husband. That's why he's still talking to the priest. And that was the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, we know he does befriend and find himself befriending people who he had racially stereotyped, now seeing that they're human beings. We know he tries to defend them in his white, male, arrogant way. It's a total disaster for the family, and he holds himself to account for it. And in a way you do not expect. Because that ending did shock me. And I think he's uh, 
and and you see that's again um he uses conventional Hollywood characters, Hollywood stereotypes, Hollywood genres, and he twists them. And whatever Mr. Eastwood's own directorial intent is, by twisting them, he makes us think about some of the deepest themes in our own life, justice, the law, revenge, moral repair, what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a good parent, what it means to be a good husband, what is the meaning of war. All of these questions uh, are addressed in the stories he's chosen. That he admittedly doesn't always answer. Exactly. So if you were to create a character for Eastwood to play based on some of the observations that you made in your book, which is called Clint Eastwood and the Issues of American Masculinity, what traits would you give him? Now, it's it's very interesting. I um, actually wanted uh, Eastwood and Eastwood's people to consider uh, doing the movie Disgrace, which is about uh, it's a South African novel about a man accused of sexual harassment um, who tries to apologize to this Afrikaans family. Because you uh, lived in South Africa, yeah, you said, for right. a while. I, I was, uh, lived in South Africa for two and a half years. Uh, and only a, recently came back. Yeah, running a project called the Ubuntu Project. And what I liked about that man is he, uh, uh, he's trying to write an opera. He's a failed professor. He admits that you know, he had the relationship. He's trying to make it right by going to visit the parents. He has a terrible relationship with his former wife. Uh, and uh, he ends up, you know, trying to make some kind of repair with his daughter, who, again, uh, seemingly was raped by a group of young black men who broke into the house. I say seemingly because we didn't know. So I thought this character, repair with his daughter, the, you know, almost humorous attempt to repair with the parents of the woman he supposedly harassed or he did have a relationship with, whether it's harassment or not. You know, we can we can discuss that. Um, but this character was exactly the kind of character in all of his complexity of trying to repair, trying to get to know who his daughter is. And it's so interesting in the novel. You never know whether the daughter is a lesbian or whether she's just opted out of heterosexuality. She decides to have the baby. Mm-hmm. So she's going to have the baby uh, by the black rapist. And then there's wow. a very interesting black character who could be read in many different ways. So I thought this scene would allow race, sexism, apology, repair, self-righteousness, um, father-daughter, all the themes. That he's what's yeah, good at. Yeah, yeah, with a man who's not necessarily attractive. Now, it came out in a movie with John Malkovich, very bad movie, and not the right part for Malkovich. And Malkovich actually worked very closely with a good friend of mine because he realized the script was pretty bad. That just wasn't the character for Malkovich. Um, and Eastwood may have been quote unquote a little old, but he would have done an incredible job if, if I could have ideally cast him in that novel. And my last question is: um, What out of all of them are your favorite Eastwood, or is your favorite Eastwood film? Um, Do you I, have a favorite? Yeah, Eastwood I film? have three: okay. Outlaw, Josie Wales, Perfect World and Grand Torino. Okay, why? Um, Outlaw Josie Wales is one of the first that he deals with war, and again, starts with a horrific traumatic event uh, where his, he's out in his fields and his entire family is killed. And again, we have his complex relationship with the issues of race and oppression um, because he's, he's playing off some of the symbolism of uh, a John Wayne movie, mm-hmm. But in it, he actually he ends up in, in Indian territory, Native American territory, and he actually rides out to meet the Native American tribe. And there you have, uh, and says, you know, let us respect each other. 
and it's such a different thing than John Wayne's, uh, you know, famous like Native American interlocutor who was like, you know, a stud with with women's scalps on his belt, you know. Uh, uh, and so it raises all these 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 huge themes in a historical context about the expansion of the West, and it, he comes into to it with such a different light. So I think that's a wonderful movie. The the this this other movie, The Perfect World, I mentioned to you. I think it's such a profound thing about someone thinking I have done the right thing, mm-hmm. uh, and it and the poignant um, story of these two uh, younger people who don't have fathers trying to pretend that maybe they could make up together what this masculine world would be, and uh, then it would be perfect, right? You know. He would be the dad he never had, and the boy would have the father he never had, and and they could they could do it together. Of course, it totally falls apart, which certainly indicates that we need intergenerational connections, and without them, much is lost that can't be repaired. And the end, you know, how many times do you have a man in a movie saying, "I don't know a damn thing," is the last line. You know, that's a very unusual line. Very and, different from Father Knows Best. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. And then Gran Torino, again, for the same for the same reasons. A, a man taking accountability. It's not like any of these masculine ideals are debunked. They're not. They're reworked. They're rethought. They're made complicated. So we have to imagine and think who we are in relationship to them. My thanks to Professor Drusilla Cornell, author of Clint Eastwood and Issues of American Masculinity. The book is out now from Fordham Press. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. You broke my